welcome to this conversation in process. I'm Jay McDaniel, editor of a website called Open Horizons. This conversation is sponsored by Open Horizons and also by the Cobb Institute, a community for process and practice. Open Horizons and the Cobb Institute have similar aims. One of our aims is to understand and explore a process outlook on life with its emphasis on interbecoming, the intrinsic value of all life, the presence of fresh possibilities, even in times of trial, and the need to create communities that are creative and compassionate and participatory, humane to animals and good for the earth, with no one left behind. Another of our aims, however, is to learn from people that practice what we call the process way, even if they're not especially interested in the process outlook. One of the practices of the process way is to listen. It's to learn from people. It's to be humble in the presence of others and realize they may have wisdom we lack. So in these conversations, we'll be talking to some people who know a lot about the process outlook and some who know very little, but who practice in ways that we want to learn from. Well, hello, Christina Hutchins. I'm so glad to see you and glad that you'll be with us for this conversation and process. And I want to introduce people to you. Uh, so here goes. Christina Hutchins' poetry books include Tender the Maker, published by Utah State University Press. And that won the May Swenson Award. And also a book called The Stranger Dissolves, published by 16 Rivers which was a finalist for a Lambda Literary Award and the Audre Lorde Publishers Triangle Award. Her poems and essays appear in Antioch Review, Beloit Poetry Journal, Denver Quarterly, The New Republic, Salma Gundi, The Southern Review, and Women's Review of Books and in volumes by Ashgate, Columbia University Press, and the State University of New York Press. She has won the Missouri Review Editor's Prize, National Poetry Review's Finch Prize, and recently served as the Dartmouth Poet in Residence at the Frost Place in Franconia, New Hampshire. She holds degrees from the University of California, Davis, Harvard, and the Graduate Theological Union. She's worked as a theology and literary arts professor, a biochemist, and she's a congregational minister. I know her, I know you, as one of the most remarkable poets uh, I know in general, and also in the process tradition. And there are several poets in the process tradition that speak in, in ways that are free and rich and imaginative. And the process tradition needs that so much. And you're among them, and you're a mentor for us all in, in that regard. Now, when I say process, that includes Whitehead, and I know he's had an influence on you. So would you say a word about how you discovered Whitehead and why he matters to you? All right. Um, thank you for having me, first of all. Um, I uh, first read Whitehead, I think, in the middle 1990s, and with Rebecca Parker, at Graduate Theological Union. And um, I was in great need of a process 
thought, but I didn't really know it, like a lot of people who come to it. And I also had been a process thinker my whole life without knowing it, which is also common, I think. Um, in particular, though, um, Whitehead is, I think, the only the only serious thinker or philosopher or theologian, and this is going to sound strange, but um, who takes loss seriously enough for me. And his notion of perishing is right in the middle of what becoming is. You, um, you, each breath is over. When it's over, it perishes and your heartbeat, each one is just there once. Um, and um, leaves in a season come and then they're just gone. And there's something very uh, tragic about that, that appealed to me. And it appealed to me partly because I was in my first sort of season of loss of people that I love. Um, I had lost a friend to suicide and another one to AIDS. And um, I had lost a relationship. So um, I think I thought that that was going to be the season of loss in my life, but I've had a lot since. So, um, But Whitehead takes it seriously enough. Um, and I think I've had that yearning to think through the concept of loss uh, my whole life. I remember being a little kid and um, I was just sad at the loss of each moment. Like if I was having a good experience before it was even over, I was sad because it was going to be over. And um, so that piece of what becoming is that becoming includes the, the, the completion and the end, the loss of that, experience or event is, um, I guess it's like nitty gritty enough for me, um, something like that. So, and I also love the motion in, in Whitehead that there's a rhythm to becoming that um, we enter into and we are entered into and then enter into everything as we are continuing to become. And there's a rhythm of sort of, uh, Whitehead calls it privacy and publicity, of being, um, becoming in one's, in, in itself, um, an event, but then being released to have an effect on the world in basically in every direction. And that motion really appeals to me and that it never ceases, that there's always emotion. Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. And, and even the way you put that, Christina, reminds me of how fresh your perspective is and how you can articulate some of these themes in, in unique and beautiful ways. Um, speaking of beauty um, and a kind of harmony and intensity that can include uh, discord, can include pain. Was the theme of beauty uh, something you recognized in Whitehead at, at the outset, or was it uh, tangential yes. to what really drew you to him? Yeah, um, I think 
I noticed right away that there is the aesthetic, the beautiful, and um, the ethical, the justice are inseparable for mm. him. And I find that so compelling. And, mm. and then beyond that, beauty is a, um, beauty, beauty comes into being out of nothing. And the idea that something beautiful can exist that didn't exist, you know, a little bit ago is, it's not really out of nothing. It's out of the past and all of those things, but it's never come together in that way before. And um, I find that very beautiful, I guess. Um, and I think the natural world is very important to me. And so the, the beauty that's in the natural world, it has to do with that rhythm I was just mentioned of sort of um, private, public, or inner, outer, and being especially alone in the, out in the woods or um, swimming in a lake or something. There is such a uh, joining together of, into that beauty. It's like getting lost kind of in a wonderful way. So yeah, I find that in there too. And I guess I'm trying to think. I, um, beauty became even more important to me when um, I read Adventures of Ideas. And I've taught a class several times on um, beauty and critique. And we read that book. And it, it never ceases to be life-changing for people. I mean, it's just amazing. And the way that it, beauty is entwined with truth and um, is really quite something and peace. So, yeah. Back to the natural world just for a second. Um, do you think, um, are you a water person or a tree person or a cloud person or an all of the above person? Uh, are there features of the natural world that are especially uh, important to you and compelling to you? That's a great question. Um, well, I'm definitely a tree person because I spend a lot of time with trees, especially redwoods, but um, really any tree. And I grew up uh, climbing trees a lot. I used to take my lunch up into the tree. And, um, but really, I think, and I love clouds, and lately I've been doing watercolor painting. So I've been paying attention to clouds like I never have before. Um, but water is just the thing. And I love to be near, especially moving water, a stream or a river or the ocean. Um, and that the sound of it, I think, is, is uh, just so, it's not comforting exactly, it's, it's enlivening for me. And um, so my poems actually are just full of water and rivers and, and I really love to swim in rivers and lakes and cold, cold water in the middle of nowhere. That's one of my favorite things to do. Um, 
because it's like I want to I used to have this rule actually as a child that if I saw water, I had to touch it. So it could be a fountain, it could be a, um, a creek, it could be the ocean, whatever. And I don't think I've totally uh, outgrown that little child rule. So, yeah. Oh, that's such a beautiful rule. <laughs> uh, may we all live by that. And, and you like to swim, as you were just saying. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that uh, swimming, it's so interesting, it, it's a combination of, float, of being in control and not being in control, of you know, relaxing into the water itself, which supports you, and yet your movements and motions play a role too. Is that any kind of metaphor for you or for um, life? Um, <laughs> yeah, I suppose it is. Um, Yes, because there's a um, trust that is required that the water is going to hold you up. And I've, I haven't thought of it that much, but, um, you know, if you fight the water, it's much more dangerous than if you rest in the water or propel yourself along in a more steady way. Um, and I wonder if that's also true of being alive. Like if, if we fight sometimes the very element that we're immersed in. And um, cause I know I make my life um, difficult for myself. And so that's, a, I haven't really thought about that, but that the trust is I've depended on that trust of life a lot, actually. It's a, even when things are really terrible, especially when things are really terrible. Um, and it, it could be something that's religious and it kind of is, um, but it's almost more basic than religion. Yeah. I, you know, the, the word faith for some people means belief but it's never meant that for me. It's always had more to do with trust. And, and sometimes you can't name that in which the, plus, the trust is placed, but it's a little bit like trust in water for me when you're, when mm -hmm. you're swimming. And so I'm glad we'll turn to that side of your life later in this um, discussion, this conversation. Let's turn to poetry. Now you're, you're a, a poet, you're a painter, mm -hmm. You're a swimmer. I'm a very beginning, beginning painter, yeah. 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 <laughs> and you're a biochemist. You're a uh, biochemist. I used to be, yeah. Can you tell us just a little bit about that side of your life, life the biochemist side of your life, and then let's turn to poetry. Okay. Um, well, when I, went to, um, when I went to UC Davis as an undergrad, the first term... Well, I thought I wanted to be a, a doctor, like almost everybody who goes to UC Davis. So there was this giant chemistry class. And, uh, and I liked chemistry, but I really liked poetry. And I was in a poetry writing class, too, that, a creative writing class. But it was taught by a, um, a TA and I didn't really know the, I was very naive. I didn't know the difference between a TA and the professor. And um, the TA hated my poetry <laughs> and really um, 
so I, I remember I got a B minus in that class and I'd never had any, anything like that. So, um, so I guess I thought for one thing, I guess I'm not a poet. I mean, it was a pretty, uh, defining, I let it be a very defining thing because I really didn't know better, I think. And, uh, and I remember he said, yeah, your poetry reminds me of Dylan Thomas. And if someone said that now, I would be so thrilled. <laughs> but he said it with such uh, almost disgust that um, it was, anyway. But anyway, so um, I did continue in the science. And my father was a physicist. And my oldest brother is an oceanographer. And my mother likes to name everything when you go out walking with her, she's very interested in naming things, which I'm not really, but um, yeah. And then once I got to more advanced classes in biochemistry, I liked what happened in the lab, but I really liked learning about the details of life of like cellular mechanisms and viruses and um, immunology and but at the same time I wish I had my notes from college because I spent a lot of the time writing in the margins of my handwritten notes that these were metaphors for something and um, so I think already then I was really thinking sort of philosophically and poetically, even though I was in the sciences. And then I worked um, in a water pollution control plant, switch plant um, lab for about four years. And then I worked for a, um, a biotech company doing research um, for a couple more years. And during that time, I had moved with my then husband um, to Seattle because he was in a PhD program there. And we got involved in a church, Plymouth Congregational there. And the minister was the first um, person I had really, really connected with um, experientially in what religion is. And I realized I didn't have to believe properly because I had sort of thought of being a minister. I grew up in the, in the UCC. And, um, but I always knew I didn't believe, you know, believe properly. And so um, it was like a permission or a freedom to pursue something that I didn't, I felt as sacred. Um, so that's how I moved into ministry and I went to Harvard Divinity School. And then I worked as a, a congregational minister at two different churches, so. Yeah. Well, on, on uh, science and poetry, my experience is a little bit like yours, Christina. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, I was pre-med. Uh, oh, you were? I was, and uh, I took a course in calculus. And uh, I got the first test back and I had a TA and I made a 42 
And I called home and I said to my mother and father, I said, mom, this, dad, this is terrible. Um, I think I might need to drop the course. And I was seeking their permission and they let me do it. They let me drop. So I dropped. I took it again the next semester and the professor, uh, a class of about a hundred people in there, the professor stood up and the first day he said, you think you're going to take a course in calculus, don't you? And we nodded our heads and he said, you're wrong. You're taking a course in poetry because what I, present, what I present to you is going to be so beautiful. It's poetry. And that reframed it for me. Yeah. I thought, oh, this is a course in poetry. And it made a huge difference. I actually passed the class, um, even made a, very, a good grade. But it all had to do in how it was framed. And if I saw it as something that was beautiful and lyrical mm -hmm. and imaginative. Really powerful, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so very similar. Now let's go on to poetry. Um, I think the other day I was in a workshop with you and, and I remember you saying kind of casually, I'm, you were going to read a poem of yours and you, you warned the people on the other side, it was a Zoom meeting, you said, um, now something to the effect, now don't try to understand this. <laughs> <laughs> and I think maybe you added the word linearly. And so, <laughs> so you warned them. And so it invited us to listen in a different way and to enter into a different way of thinking and perceiving than linear thinking. Can you say a word about that and how you try to evoke that sometimes in your poems? Oh, so um, I, I think I really am a fan of associative thinking. Mm -hmm in a lot of contexts. And by that I mean where instead of thinking um, in sort of a, a linear logic that X causes Y causes Z, da da da, um, that with associative thinking, in a way you're leaping all over the place, but you're really not. Because for me, I use a lot of images and so sometimes what my brain is doing when I'm making a poem in an associative way is um, moving through the image to something that's like it in another image. And what's amazing about doing that is um, that within that leap or that connection is the meaning of the poem that maybe I um, you know, wanted, but didn't know, didn't know what it was. Um, so I, I love, I love writing poems associatively. And one of my favorite things to do is to have, it's a little bit different, but to have maybe three different topics and braid them together associatively in the same poem. And it, brings out the, it really brings out the nuances of each of the, each of the parts. And they're much more beautiful when they're contrasted right against each other. It's like, a, um, like the background behind you on your 
zoom, the mountain is has more mountainous because it's against the sky. And so um, by weaving together sky and mountain, they both become more of, more of what they are. And associative thinking is really thinking through the image for me. And so sometimes I'll, sometimes it'll be one image through the whole poem. And I'm interested especially in images or metaphors that move. I, I'm really not that interested in, um, I don't know, really stationary metaphors. But if I have a, it, it could be, a, that's one reason I like water as a lot in my poems and dynamics of sea and the wind. And, um, and I have one poem that's an extended metaphor and I don't know if it's a successful poem or not. It might be too confusing, but um, in it, the, the ocean, the undertow is going into not the next wave because the next wave is already breaking and not even the one behind it because that one is already moving toward the shore, but it's the undertow is going into the forming of the third wave out there. And um, so I was trying to um, use that, follow that metaphor because I could feel something in there a feeling quality that mattered to me, but I didn't know what it was exactly. So um, poetry, I think the poetry I like leaves me with something to think about after the poem is over. And it also is a proposition to feel and to feel further or into more depth than what I was feeling about something before. Um, so I think for me, a, a successful poem would be if the reader uh, recognizes a feeling and feels, um, has that experience, because it's really the poet giving the reader the experience more than the poet expressing herself. Um, but then giving that experience, but then um, inviting something further like um, a further experience or creative thought or um, there's, I don't know, it's like there's something more, something excess that's in a poem. I don't know if that answers, I don't even remember what the question was actually. <laughs> what was the question? It answered the question. The, the question was what form of thinking or feeling or, or being in the world do you hope is sometimes evoked by your poems? And um, I think I understand what you were saying. I think, I think I understand what it's like to think in terms of feeling tones. Mm -hmm. and, and the feeling tones can be uh, evoked um, by words, but also by sounds. Yes. Uh, and, and also by rhythms. And so mm -hmm. that's, that's going on in a lot of non-music non without lyrics. Um, feeling tones are being evoked. Um, I, I sometimes think that in Whitehead's philosophy, um, music is what feelings sound like. You know, you know the whole universe is, consists of feelings, and we, we do as well. 
but what do they sound like? And I think I hear in you, uh, poetry can be what feelings feel like too. too. And, and I really appreciate the associative, mm -hmm. what you call associative thinking. Do you think that theology uh, can be like that? Or is theology inherently argumentative, trying to prove a point and going A, B, C, D, E, F, G? And I know that there is theology that goes like that, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Uh -huh. but, but is there a kind of theology that you have read or philosophy that that is at home with associative thinking and in the, the propositional lure for feeling uh, mode? Um, or does only poetry do that? No, I think other, other things do that too. Um, the person who comes to mind as a theologian who does that is Catherine Keller. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. her, her writing is very associative and in fact, so much so that if people are used to the ABCD kind of thought, sometimes yeah. they find her reading very difficult, which in another way, it's less difficult. Um, and, uh, and I think one of the things she's doing is she's breaking the connection between um, sort of literalness and logic and um, sort of the, med the metaphysics of substance of fixed things. She's um, managing to not even just um, trouble those things, but she's really undoing them with the writing itself beyond what it's about. Um, and so she's, she does that a lot. Um, I think, I think poetry is a little more that way because for one thing, it's, it's partly made out of um, condensing. Um, it's usually a poem isn't made out of one experience. Um, it's made out of many, many, many experiences, the felt tones of them um, overlapping and building. And um, so, there's a, a kind of a, um, a, a condensing that happens in poetry. And poetry also has tools. The reason that I really love poetry is it has all these different facets. And you mentioned sound and the music of language. Um, and that's a big one for me. Um, I write mostly what's called a sprung rhythm, which is from Gerard Manley Hopkins, which is uh, kind of counting the strong beats in a line, but not with a not with a da 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 da, -da pattern. And the reason I like that actually is because it's not um, predictable. I mean, if I had if I heard a piece of music and it just went da 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 da, -da, -da <laughs> I would be pretty bored, and I wouldn't have the emotional experience and the tension that build from varying the rhythm. So, so there's the rhythm and then there's um, the, the syntax, the grammar in a poem, which is 
a wonderful tool. If I make a, a poem that's all one sentence, um, it's a very different thing than if I make a poem that's a lot of little short sentences. And those are all, they seem like things that are about um, sort of ninth grade English class, but they're actually um, about the feeling tones. You, feeling tones are created by the material of the, of the language. Um, and then I, I was talking about image and um, there's, there's also the, a narrative that can be there or a story that can be told or parts of a story. Um, and I think the thing about poetry is um, words, it's really made out of words that are dis destabilizing. You mentioned um, cliches and uh, the good poetry is really anti-cliche. And I, I say good poetry because it's a judgment and yet I feel like there's poetry that isn't good poetry and it may be good for another purpose. It may be good for um, the purpose of um, someone expressing, you know, getting something out of their, out of their chest or whatever. Um, but I think that the best poetry is really a gift to the reader and it, and it's giving, it's giving all of those um, tools mixed together. Um, and that's really fun to do. I just really, really like to do that. Yeah. Well, I majored in uh, English literature um, in college. I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> so I know Dylan Thomas. Uh, I know Gerard Manley Hopkins. Uh, I know Ezra Pound and the kind of fragmentary, the fragments of the cantos and jumping from here to there to here to there. And so, and um, just to say thank you for, for all that you've been saying. Let's turn to the spiritual side of your life, but that's probably not a big leap because I have a feeling that when you talk about associative thinking and sensitivity to feeling tones, um, the rhythms of life, the disruptions in life, the loss, mm -hmm. and maybe sometime the resurrections that those are in the realm of um, religion and spirituality. Can you say a word about that side of your life? Um, however you want to proceed is fine. Um, well, I think I had a period of time where uh, there was very little resurrection in my life. Mm -hmm. um, it was all loss. And, uh, and during that time, I'm not sure my um, my religious persuasion served me that well. Um, what did serve me well, ultimately, and does, is the communal side of religion. Um, I like being a congregational because the word congregation is in there, which um, says that the very the very essence of it is in the communal body together. And so I love singing together. Singing together is probably my most uh, explicit religious experience, I would say. Um, but
but also um, social justice um, commitments and actions and a community that's focused beyond itself, whether it's out into the world, but also onto the divine. Um, the seasons of, of the church actually mean a lot to me. The, um, I think maybe this goes with the loss, I'm not sure, but the, the experience of longing is for me a profoundly sacred experience. It's holy. Um, and it doesn't mean that all longing is, I guess, uh, sacred or whatever, maybe, but it's, it's a, it's a sign that there's, there's more, there's more to unfold. There's more beauty. There's more love. Um, and so that piece of, of, my spirituality finds a home in, in, um, in Christianity, really. And I think one of my favorite parts of Christianity is um, Holy Week. And it's sort of short, but <laughs> it's really the, it's really the, um, you know, the little tiny nugget that's, that's, and what is there that I find so important is the, like on Monday, Thursday, the reaching out of Jesus from that place of um, suffering. And uh, I, I just, I find that very moving and not so much as an example, but as a, um, maybe it is, it's that life can be, Life can matter this much. Life does matter this much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm close to people like in my, in my church. Uh, one of the things though that I find is um, in a lot of Christian uh, worship that I've noticed in the last maybe 10 or 15 years, is it seems like there's a dearth of beauty. There's, um, there's beauty is becoming not valued very much. There's a sort of a, a surface level experience that um, has overtaken a deep beauty. And so I would like to see more of that brought, brought forth and more in, I like, I like to think if I'm in uh, church. So I want, intellectual capacities and uh, in my religious experience to, yeah. You actually want to think in church? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and sing. <laughs> think and sing. The church of thinking and singing. Um, you know, your mention of, of longing mm -hmm. as, um, as a mention of, I think it's a dimension of the religious life. I think it certainly is. And I'm reminded of, of, of the Sufi tradition. You, you see it in Rumi, but you see it in lots of places. That you're as close to God in longing as you are in, in, in felt intimacy. That when you long for what is not, there's a rather deep love. Um, and uh, that takes me to, can you say a word about 
your understanding of God or beauty or longing and how they're connected in any way or not connected? Well, I really like that. Uh, what you just said about the um, longing being a form of love. And I yeah. think I, I have read that in Sufi poetry a lot, but something about the way you said it was so clear. Um, so um, it's important to me to name God, God, or um, because, well, well, for several reasons. One um, is I like the, I don't know if humility is the right word of it, but the um, not being the center. And, uh, and so it's what I, when I said, I like the community focused beyond itself. I like that, um, that we're all worshiping something beyond ourselves and beyond, um, fully being known. And so naming that God matters, um, and part of, partly why it matters for me is because it allows theological thinking. If, if we didn't have, um, it's so hard because I'm, I'm a real fan of Whitehead's misplaced concreteness where um, categories are not the real thing, you know, the, and, uh, and yet to do certain kinds of thinking, we need categories and we need names and otherwise it turns into a big mush kind of and uh so the notion of god theologically is really important to me too because there's something to uh build with to push against to um to connect with in the in theological literature of of the ages really um and and to redefine that's like um so the so god is both an sort of an intellectual um companion of within the act of thinking kind of but also um i mean i also <laughs> i'm one of those people who also prays when you know, the traffic light is about to turn red and um, I'll hear myself saying, oh God, keep, keep it green. <laughs> you know? And uh, so I think, I don't really believe in uh, like asking God for, to change actuality. Um, but I notice that I do it every now and then too. So it's, yeah, it's in me. And I love singing um mm. in a worshipful way mm -hmm. and music yeah mm. yeah i don't know you if think, that helps no that that certainly does um just a word on the defining you know there's a sense in which whitehead redefines god and that means a lot to a lot of people um but there may also be a sense in which people that grow enthusiastic about whitehead's approach can overdefine god uh, and, and forget um, the unnameable and the mystery in which we swim. So I, I wanted to ask, you know, you the question, do you, 
where are you with regard to we must be precise about our definition of God because that provides an alternative to unhealthy ways of thinking about God versus um, it's kind of a mystery <laughs> and, and we can't pigeonhole God. We can't reduce God to the fallacies of our categories, whatever they are. Uh, where do you find yourself in that spectrum between let's, let's really define and let's not define at all? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm kind of both because um, I definitely am on the mystery side of, and the older that I get, I think maybe the more I'm on that side, uh, but I also think it's, it's really important to think theologically and carefully, if only because people are are using the same words and categories to think in ways that are um, sometimes really not life-giving. And so to, you know, to lay claim to that language also, I think is, has always mattered to me. And um, yeah, I guess, I guess um, the other piece that's kind of important to me, and maybe this is taking the, the question in a different direction, um, is that, um, well, if I think of poetry, mm. poetry comes out of wonder or mystery um, and not knowing um, of uncertainty. Um, John Keats had a, his negative capability was the ability to be in uncertainty without reaching after, irritably reaching after reason. And um, so, but poems also come out of thinking. And uh, I mean, serious thinking. There is a kind of a knowing and it's, it's, it's collecting knowledge and, um, and not doing it casually. But, and so I think of theology as being like that too, and that um, God, coming toward God with wonder and as wonder and mystery, but also with the collection of what thinking is and um, I, I mean the other part of my my sort of self is a really a philosophical self that does like really hard thinking through details of um, ideas and relationships and, yeah and I do like thinking through using images to do that thinking, but, uh, yeah. So I, I mean, I think the, the theological piece is really important as is the mystery. How important to you uh, is, is love to your understanding of God? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, so I'm going to go back to being a poet for a second and, um, I think if I had to categorize my poetry, 
I would say that I'm a love poet. Mm. Um, and it's because a lot of my poetry has to do with um, human love and lovers and that kind of love. But also the way that um, love is sort of about praise and longing together. And for me, that's, that's where a lot of my poetry falls. Um, and so love is something for me that I cannot separate from the ways that I've learned love. So it's, uh, it's not a loose idea sort of hanging around. It's, um, I was very well loved as a child and um, especially by my father. He was a very feeling person and he was a very um, generous character. And, um, and I feel like who I am is instilled with love. Um, and so I can't separate out love as an idea very well and, and talk about it. I mean, I do, but um, love has a real embodiedness, you know. Even if I say that I, I've been off doing hard work or something and I come home and I'm, and I love to be at home. That love is, is also really embodied. I'm really happy to be in this place. Or if I'm out in the redwoods and I love to be there, it's a, um, it's, it's a particular kind of love though. I, I guess the love that I, I uh, value as um, sort of salvific, I guess, is that love that is for and with the other, um, that wants the other's joy. And um, and that is sort of tangled up in me with God but I can't, I've never really sorted out, except for maybe in sermons or something, but generally I don't um, sort out where love and God are tangled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've certainly seen in your life um, a passion uh, that the other be cared for, that, that no one be left behind. Mm -hmm. And um, my own hope is that poetry and the arts can be in service to that hope as well, can be in service to um, a more whole world where no one's left behind. Mm -hmm. um, these days, uh, where do you find your, do you find hope? Uh, and I'll leave that very general. It can be hope for society, hope for yourself, hope for the unnameable, you know, whatever. Um, um, do you find hope? And, and how does it uh, pull you forward? Um, well, in a very sort of down-to-earth way, 
I, uh, um, I find hope right now in the Black Lives Matter um, protests. And in particular, kind of the, um, the way that it seems like a lot of people are starting to understand that there is such a thing as systemic, not just racism, but systemic uh, ways that we are constituted in uh, oppressive ways. And I think um, with the Black Lives Matter, it's, it's the police brutality that's being recognized, but it's also, um, it's the inequality right now in how the COVID-19 is being, um, deaths are happening with COVID-19. And I think there's something even more almost basic, which is, it feels like there's an empathy for someone like um, a black man or boy or teenager who lives in a world that's taught to fear him and and how that's an awful thing it, it's an awful thing to live in a world that has been taught to fear who you are i mean and um so i think the systemic part of of racism is is having its say um, in a lot of ways and that's good for all of us and um, so I find great hope for that because so much has been kind of uh, well in buried in whiteness in terms of um, that piece of, of existence. And so I think it's, I think I find hope there. Um, I also find, well, I guess the other thing that I, I find hope for and also worry about is the way that history is being reframed. And, um, I think history isn't only what happened. It's, it's our interpretations um, of events that we weren't present at. And it's how we value the outcomes of that. And, um, and in particular, um, how we use it to, to value or devalue life now. And so, I'm hopeful that some of that is is uh, becoming more um, visible, but I also worry that um, we might fall short of we might be being too literal sometimes and um, in and not looking at how we're valuing from the past, how we're living the past, how we're embodying it. Um, and it's who we become through that past. And uh, so 
that I have both hope and worry in that direction. Um, I guess I have a little bit of hope with the virus, a couple things. One is um, that we actually can slow down. We've, we've been just going so fast and I'm not a fast person. And um, the being able to slow down and, and think and relate and exist um, is quite something really. And I guess the other, the other piece of, um, of uh, hope that I have that's come from the, the um, COVID era or whatever is all of those animals who have, um, it's happening less now because we're sort of opening up more, but those animals who uh, emerged when people disappeared and they were such a, they were all over the world. And I wrote a poem about it. And I actually think it's like, um, it's like Keats's negative capability, but the, it's the negative capability of the world. Like if we empty out, then there's room for what you could think of as the unconscious or whatever to emerge. And uh, there were coyotes in the financial district of San Francisco. And there was pumas who came down from um, into Santiago, into the city. And um, in South Africa, I don't know if you saw that uh, video of the lions laying in the road and they, they took it over. They, when cars came, they wouldn't let them go by, you know, and, uh, the one that I found the most moving maybe, well, there was a couple, one was a, um, the leatherback turtles in Thailand came up on a beach, they're endangered and they came up on a beach, um, that's normally full of tourists and laid their eggs. And, um, the, this was the big one is in the Hong Kong zoo, the pandas, the giant pandas, they had been together for 10 years and, and everybody hoped they would mate and they never did and they weren't interested or anything. And then the zoo was completely deserted and they started like having their panda foreplay and they mated. And uh, there's something in that that's, um, well, I mean, it's a metaphor, but it's, it's literal yeah. too. Like what happens if we get out of the way, you know? That's great. That's great. Yeah. Well, um, that's such a gorgeous image. Gorgeous isn't the right word of, of resurrection. You can almost hear those images in the final book of some kind of Bible uh, as what it's like when life is allowed to, to remember itself and, mm -hmm. and flourish anew. That's nice. Yeah. When, when we get out of the way, when we get out of the way. Christina, I wonder if we can close this. Uh, would you read a poem for us? Sure. Um, since we were talking about loss, it was either this one or one about uh, Venice and the the stairs that were that are slowly going underwater. Um, but I think this is better. 
And this okay. has associative movement in it. It's, um, it's called A Way Back to Life. And I wrote it after a trip to St. Petersburg and um, Krakow. And uh, it's a love poem, but it's also part of that making peace with loss that maybe is my life's occupation. Um, a Way Back to Life. From Russians, I learned never to shake hands across a threshold. But a half hour after rising, I returned to set my cool hand into the bed where a river of dream heat lingers. The still warm flank of our horse's dark gallop. To make sure it was me they got, my parents put up all night with a mockingbird perched aloud in one of three liquid birches a handspan from their open window. Do you think I'd make that up? Ask me, and I might tell you the joke that rolls like a yellow marble from all that I have made. A cloak of lightning around my shoulders. I can slip like a drumbeat into the actual world. If only making love did not also make loss. If only a curtain call and the dead lifted their bodies live. From the surprise taxi emerged a child beautiful in her buttoned coat, but on the stones even her small feet sang the terrible clatter. You have suggested we take the floating trip, meaning perhaps without formal destination. Will you bury your head in the softness of my belly where old yearnings still sleep? Continent to continent, homeless and without fixed beliefs, perhaps a large part laughter. There is nowhere loss will refuse to take us. I have decided to trust the late night horse and its riders. <laughs> Uh, that's so beautiful, and thank you so much. You're thank you for being with us uh, today. This has been such a rich conversation, and we learned so much from you. You're a gift to the world. Thank you. So please know that. You take care. Okay, you too. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Conversations in Process is a co-production of the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. If you'd like to support this podcast and help us realize our aim to advance wisdom, harmony, and the common good, please consider making a donation by visiting cobb.institute. That's cobb.institute and clicking on the donate button.